have a confession to make. <clears throat> Some Sundays I get too excited. <laughs> and uh, just even in our practice at 8.30, uh, I sing a little louder than I should, and then I preach in Spanish at 9.30, so um, <clears throat> I might have abused my voice this morning a little bit, so bear with me. Um, we'll be fine. I've got water. Okay, so have you heard of Jim Jones? Some of you know a whole lot more about him than others probably because some of you might remember when this was in the news. Um, I don't. I was, I guess, three years old. No, no, I was older than that. I was older than that. No, no, I was a lot older than that. I'm sorry. I'm, math is not my thing. That's Reuben's thing. Anyway, <clears throat> this was a guy claimed to be a Christian and was a very charismatic leader. He preached and taught against racism, and he drew a lot of people to himself. This is in the 70s. Um, but people started to accuse him and his group of uh, financial fraud, of physical abuse of his followers, even abuse of children. So he convinced his followers that they needed to go to Guyana and relocate to Jonestown, a city in Guyana. They went there and had set up camp there, but the investigations continued. And finally, feeling that uh, everything was going to be exposed, he, uh, on November 18, 1978, led his followers to commit mass suicide. 909 people lost their lives in the Jonestown Massacre. People that followed this man thought he was going to make their lives better. They thought he was wise and spiritual and that he would make everything better for them. And that's why they put everything in following after what he was saying. In the end, he stole from them, he killed them, he destroyed them. That's what Jesus is warning about in the passage we're looking at today. And this is the concluding passage in this long section centering around the Feast of Booths. So before I start reading, uh, I've titled the message, The Good Shepherd or Thieves, and we're going to be in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. But let me recap very quickly what's going on, because we are closing a section that started in chapter 7 with the Feast of Booths and uh, how... Uh, you know, people were going up and telling Jesus, are you going to go up? And he didn't go up with them, went up later. And then midway through the feast, he stands up and says some things. And the whole feast, Jesus is playing off of the symbols that were part of the feast. Now, in the Feast of Booths, they had a practice. Every morning, they would take water from the pool of Siloam. And they would bring it and pour it out at the feet of the altar. And where pagans did this kind of thing to their gods, uh, and they felt that fertility cults and prostitution and all these rituals that they had built into their religions were the ways you got the gods to bring water so that there would be abundant crops and there'd be plenty of food and the animals would multiply and you'd have a lot of sheep and a lot of goats and a lot of uh, cows. Uh, they thought that's how the gods did it, but the Jews rejected that. It was God alone, Yahweh, Yahweh. 
who provided everything for them, the water of life itself, the sustenance for everything they needed. And they recognized that every morning as they brought that water from the pool of Siloam and poured it out at the feet of the altar. Every evening during the Feast of Booths, they would light up chandeliers in the court of women and all the people of Israel could gather in there and on the steps leading down into the court of women the musicians would set up and they would lead the people in praises to God all night long celebrating and dancing and celebrating God's goodness and in defiance against the night around them they did it with light all night long so in this feast Jesus said things like If anyone thirsts, he must come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, just as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. He says that in chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. This water you guys are grabbing and bringing to the foot of the altar, this provision of abundant life. That's what I've come to give. I am the thing you are celebrating. Later on in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the cosmos. The one who follows me will never, ever walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know that those chandeliers you're lighting up every night, raising up praises to God in defiance of the darkness around you. I am the light of the cosmos. I am the light of creation. I am the light of life. Everything you are doing at this feast, you are lifting a prayer to God and God has answered, I am here. I have come to give you everything you're talking about. Life abundant, flowing eternally. (coughs) He concludes all of this with a sign, an object lesson. What better way to talk about bringing light and life to someone than taking a man born blind and healing him? And in fact, Jesus even uses the pool of Siloam to do it. He puts, spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on his eyes and says, go to Siloam, the pool, and wash. And when he did that at that pool, he came back seeing. What a perfect illustration of Jesus bringing light to a man who had only ever in his whole life known darkness. And he used the water of Siloam, to tie it all together. So all that's been going on, and and you would think this is a wonderful three chapters here, seven, eight, nine, half of ten. Wonderful, you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of all our longings and hopes, the aspirations, the promises of Scripture finally come to fruition. Let's celebrate. But that is not at all what's been going on in these chapters. At every point, Jesus is met with resistance, hostility, and the religious leaders have banded together against him and they are challenging him at every step and rejecting everything he has to say. And even when he does something miraculous, like heal a man born blind, they want to say he's doing it by the power of Satan himself. Even though Satan's not in the business of bringing light. It makes no sense. But they fight him 
tooth and nail every step of the way. So we arrive at this final concluding uh, teaching of Jesus in this event. So let's read verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter into the courtyard of the sheep through the door, but is climbing up some other way, that one is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens for this one, and the sheep heed his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never, ever follow a stranger, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus spoke this figure of speech to them, but they did not know what it was that he was saying to them. Jesus, in these verses, taps into deep wells in the prophets. He's going to use the imagery of sheep and shepherd. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that this is a a thing that burns through the major prophets. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel have multiple passages in which God is talking to the shepherds of Israel and condemning them because rather than care for the sheep, they have devoured them. Rather than protect them, they have abused them. Not only that, but when they've taken what they wanted from them and danger has come from without, they have completely left them abandoned to their fate. And the prophets blame the leaders of Israel for the fact that Assyria has been able to come in and scatter them throughout the ancient world. And the Babylonians have come into Judah and scattered the Jews throughout the ancient world. It is the fault of the shepherds who have neglected the sheep. It's a constant complaint in the prophets. Jesus taps into that in these verses. And he is comparing himself throughout this passage. He's comparing himself to all the other folks. All the other pretenders who claim to be the legitimate leaders of the spiritual life of Israel. I want you to think about that as we're working our way through this passage today. Who do I consider to be the legitimate spiritual voice over my life? Is it Oprah? Is it Joel Osteen? Who do I think is, is it Spurgeon? Have I picked, is it MacArthur? Have I picked some great name that I'm going to say this is the one I'm following after? He is the shepherd of my soul? Jesus very clearly puts himself in a a category alone and puts everybody else somewhere else. So he begins with this image of the courtyard of the sheep. Your translation might say the fold of the sheep, but that word specifically is courtyard. Uh, and what he's pointing to here is what would happen in, at this time in the winter. So in the summer months when it was warm, the sheep would spend all the time outdoors. They would make little 
stone circles and the shepherd would lay across the opening to it and gather them in there and protect them during the night but they'd stay out on the open field well once it got colder and winter drew near they would bring them to the house and they'd have like a courtyard walled courtyard with maybe briars growing to keep thieves out and kind of a gateway into that courtyard but they would they would bring the sheep next to their homes and have them in a courtyard set apart for the sheep there next to the home that's what he's describing here uh, this sheep next to the home of the shepherd. Uh, so he says, let me paint a picture for you, a visual image. If you see one of these sheep folds attached to a house and you see somebody climbing over the wall, what do you think? Do you think, wow, that shepherd's sure getting into his sheepfold by an odd way? No. You immediately know if somebody's trying to climb over the wall, that's not the shepherd. You know who that is? That's a thief. That's a robber. Now, if you see somebody opening the door and coming in through the door, then you say, okay, well, this, this, this is this guy's home. These are his sheep. He's entering into his sheepfold. The doorkeeper opens for this one. The sheep heed his voice. Consider Jesus, as opposed to the religious leaders, he is facing off against. They have worked really hard to get to their positions of power and authority. In fact, in the first century, the Romans have come in. They've taken away their independence. The king, the governor, is whoever the Romans say, and it's not a Jew. In the territory of Judea, it's a procurator. In the other territories, they are sons of Herod the Great who is not a Jew. These are Idumeans. So the, the, the governorship has been taken away from the Jews. The highest position the Romans allowed any Jew to hold was the high priest. And they considered it so uh, important and so influential that they didn't just let the Jews themselves decide who needed to be high priest. And according to the law of Moses, it had to be not just a Levite, but he had to be a descendant of Aaron himself, uh, from the family of Aaron. Those were the requirements according to the law of Moses. But the Romans had come in and said, forget that. We're going to give the high priesthood to whoever we think best suits our interests and it had become kind of a bidding war if you had enough money to buy the spot you could get it if you had the right clout and political influence and were very uh, clear that you were pro-Rome and you would help their interests in the city of Jerusalem then the Romans would make you high priest and it had nothing to do with being a descendant of Aaron by this point and from there on down the religious leadership in Jerusalem was people clawing their way to the top and there was a lot of money in this ancient historians say that the homes of the priests in Jerusalem were comparable in their level of luxury to the homes of senators in Rome itself there was a lot of money to be made in clawing your way to the top and this is the kind of leadership that the people of Israel have been facing in the first century. And if you study the history between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus, you realize that people are constantly pushing back and forth, trying to get control of everything and impose their will on the rest of the Jewish people. 
And when Pharisees get to power, they make it rough on the Sadducees. And when the Sadducees are in power, they make it difficult for the Pharisees. And it's a constant pushing and pulling and striving for control. And the image Jesus paints for us is of a thief trying to scramble his way over the wall to get access to the fold of God. Contrast that to Jesus who has done nothing to curry the favor of Rome. He has not uh, sold himself to gain the political backing of anybody. He hasn't built his influence among the people based on favors and nepotism and uh, the purchasing of influence. No, he's walked around city to city and called people one by one by name. He went to Matthew, Levi, sitting at the tax collection booth and said, come, follow me. He went to Peter and Andrew and James and John fishing and said, come, follow me. As he was walking along and looked up and saw Zacchaeus in the tree, he called him by name, Zacchaeus, come down. I have to go to your house today. There was nothing illegitimate about his ministry. He called the sheep by name and they responded because God's sheep know the shepherd. Jesus doesn't specify what he means by the doorkeeper opens for this one. But if there's any uh, gatekeeping involved in access to the people of God, if God places any restrictions on your access to the people of God, then clearly Jesus has legitimately been granted full access to the fold of God. And the sheep heed his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Notice the image he describes here. There are different ways people uh, care for sheep. Some people uh, send them out ahead and have maybe dogs to keep them from wandering. But in the ancient Near East, that's not the way they did it. You would bring your sheep out and then you would walk ahead of the sheep and you would train them to know your voice and respond to your voice and follow after you. And you would lead them to the pastures where the good grass was, where they had what they needed, where they had the water they needed. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before him and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never ever follow a stranger, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This has just been perfectly illustrated in the life of the man born blind. When Jesus healed him, and the Pharisees got all worried about that, about this challenge to their authority over the people of God, and this guy that they had dismissed as just another beggar, another person cursed from birth by God, and beneath their attention or interest, Jesus had healed and restored and absolutely transformed his life. So when they call him into their little... Uh, powwow and try to tell, try to convince him and pressure him and use all the force of their influence 
to pressure him to renounce Jesus. Give God praise. This man is a sinner. Agree with us and denounce Jesus as someone working against God. This man said, you guys are crazy. What have you guys ever done for me? I don't care what you have to say to me. This guy opened my eyes. I can tell you, I don't know a lot, but I know this. This guy is from God. You can say what you want. I don't care. And he found, Jesus found him afterwards and revealed to him very clearly, I am the Messiah. And he called him Lord and worshipped him. He had heard the voice of the shepherd and once he had heard the shepherd and his life had been transformed by the encounter, there was no other voice he had any interest in. No matter how many other people might say, these are the voices you need to pay attention to, he knew better. He had heard the shepherd and knew this is the shepherd of my soul. I am never ever going to follow anybody else. John tells us that Jesus spoke this figure of speech to them, but they didn't know what it was he was saying. You know, another uh, thing that is in, in this whole section, another constant complaint of the prophets, it goes all the way back to Moses, is that the people of God, God has given them eyes, but they don't want to see. God has given them ears, but they refuse to hear. They will not understand because they do not want to understand. Jesus opens eyes and also makes it clear that those who think they already see everything clearly are the ones who are truly blind. So he's, he's explaining all of this, but they will not receive what he has to say. I have a question from these verses. If God's people are, like, are a flock of sheep, Jesus claims to be the only legitimate shepherd. What makes Jesus our only true shepherd and all others illegitimate usurpers? Let's keep reading verse 10. So again, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not heed them. I am the door. If one should enter through me, he will be saved, and he will come in and go out and will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. When Jesus starts off a sentence with truly, truly, pay attention to what he says right after that. That's his way of signaling, what I'm about to lay on you is a, a solid word of truth. You pay attention to this one. Not that he ever lies to us, but he highlights very significant statements of truth that we need to get by saying truly, truly, pay attention to this. I and the door of the sheep. And this is another one of those, ego I me, I am. 
I am the door of the sheep. If there is a fold of God, I'm the access point. The way sheep get into this fold is me. You want to be a part of God's fold? The only way in is me. A lot of people want to tell us that Jesus is great if if that's what you like. If he kind of works for you. But uh, I've, I've got another way to go about my spiritual approach. I'm a very spiritual person, and I've got all these other ways of doing it. And, you know, basically God is the top of the mountain, and which path you choose to get to the top doesn't really matter. We'll all end up in the same place at the end. Well, if that is true, then don't follow Jesus because he's a big fat liar. Because he said, I'm the only way. I'm not a way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said it. He couldn't have been any clearer than he was. You want to get into the group of people that belong to God? Jesus is the gate. He is the access point. There is no other way in. I don't care what Oprah tells you. There's no other way. I don't care what anybody tells you. There's no other way in. Now, Jesus says, uh, if you do come in through me, you will be saved. I will rescue you. Not only that, but I will give you everything you need. (coughs) You'll come in. You'll go out. You will find the pastures you need. I will supply everything you need for life. Jesus says, everybody else, nothing but a thief and a robber. Human history is littered with people who have had the audacity to claim the position of glory and honor and devotion that belongs only to God. And they have built religions around themselves. And they have built followings and cults and all kinds of things. But you know what is the common denominator in all of these things? Is that they end up stealing from and destroying the people they're following. They prey on them sexually and financially. It's inevitable. It's always happening. Because they're nothing but thieves and robbers. Anyone who claims for himself the devotion only God deserves is a thief and a robber. I am the door. You want in? This is the only way through Jesus. What's the thief trying to do? Steal, kill, destroy. You may think these people, these gurus, these self-appointed, enlightened people are, are doing nothing but trying to make your life wonderful. But you know what they're doing? They're getting obscenely wealthy at your expense. They are. They are so wealthy. And you know what their concern is? Not you. It's them. That's all they're interested in. Taking 
what is not theirs. And I'm not just talking about them taking your money. If they are claiming your devotion, they are stealing from God. Because they don't have a right to that. And ultimately, all they're going to do for you is kill and destroy. Contrast that to Jesus. I have come so that you can have life. Not just so that you survive, so that you scrape by. Some people misunderstand the Christian walk as I've got to have a really miserable life now so that when I die it'll be really awesome. That's not at all what Jesus said. He said you're going to get a thousand, a hundred times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. It's not about somehow paying for a great eternity by being miserable now. No, I have come that you have life and have it abundantly. Sometimes learning what, it, what really is living is a painful process because the lies are so deeply rooted in our hearts that we think the poison is the good stuff. We think what is killing us is making us better. And sometimes the process of, of bringing us to true abundant life is a painful process for us. But it is life abundant. And Jesus alone offers that. I have a question from these verses. How have you experienced theft, death, and destruction when you have followed after voices other than that of Jesus? How have you experienced abundant life following after Jesus? Let's keep reading verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his soul for the sheep. The hired worker who is not a shepherd, of whom the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired worker. And he is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my soul for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not from this courtyard. Those also I must bring, and they will heed my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the gate, I'm the access point into the fold of God. But guess what? I am also the God who is caring for the sheep. I'm not just the one that makes it so that you can gain access to this. I'm not just the one that deals with your problem of sin and reconciles you to God and rescues you from exclusion. I am also the God who is caring for you. Here Jesus is tapping into a deep well in the prophets. I've told you about the prophets complaining about the bad shepherds over the people of Israel. Finally, God gets fed up and through Ezekiel, this is what he has to say. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, 
Ezekiel 34, verse 11 and 15 and 16. This is where, what Jesus is tapping into. God's promise of saying, you have suffered enough at the hand of robbers and thieves. I'm going to step in and I will shepherd you. Jesus says, I'm here. The good shepherd has arrived. What does a good shepherd do? What differentiates the good shepherd from all the pretenders? The good shepherd lays down his soul for the sheep. That word there in the Greek, suke, uh, literally means soul. It can also mean kind of life force or life. Most translations there have the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's certainly within the semantic range of the word. But uh, the, the, the word that specifically would be translated life is zoe. And John uses that word throughout his gospel a lot. Which tells me that here the choice of a different word is significant. So I, I translated it soul because I think there's something to that. It isn't just that physically Jesus is willing to die for us. There are a whole lot of people who've died through the ages and people who have died uh, defending uh, the people of God people who have died in different circumstances uh, in favor of the people of God it isn't just that Jesus is willing to lose his physical life for us he's going to do something a whole lot more than that you know what Jesus is not the only person that endured death by crucifixion Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people uh, were crucified by the Romans. He's not the only one who endured the physical humiliation of being strung up naked and nailed to wood and left to die. Many people endured that. But Jesus was going to lay his soul on the altar. Jesus was going to bear the legitimate payment, the legitimate punishment for the sin of the world. Think for a moment of all the misery and heartache and soul-crushing agony that somebody like Hitler visited upon the world. What kind of suffering would be equivalent to the amount of suffering that one man caused? Jesus wasn't going to just endure the right pay, punishment for that uh, evil. He was going to endure the punishment, the rightful punishment for the sin of the world. We can't begin to comprehend. It's just, it's, it's so big. We, our minds can't process how much Jesus had to endure on the cross. After he died and they pierced his side, blood and water flowed. What kind of agony does a person go through for something like that to happen to you physically? That the blood separates from water in your body. It wasn't the scourging. It wasn't the nails. Something spiritually when he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. And when God was in him reconciling the world to himself, he was bearing the full weight of the wrath of God that burns with white hot fury against all sin. He laid his soul 
on the altar for us and bore the payment for us. Not only would we never find anybody else willing to do that, there's nobody else who is a legitimate person to take that position for us. Only God can say, I will take upon myself the sin of the offense against me. Nobody else can step in and do that. But God can say, I'm the offended party. I will bear the punishment myself. The good shepherd lays down his soul for the sheep. Contrast that to everybody else. The hired worker. These people who are in it for the money. That's certainly a great description of the spiritual leadership in the first century in Jerusalem. These guys were in it for the money. There was a lot of it. The hired worker, he's not a shepherd. The sheep don't belong to him, regardless of what they claim. Guess what happens when the wolf comes after the sheep? They cut tail and run. They don't care about the sheep. These spiritual gurus we lift up for ourselves and become devotees of, you think they actually care about you one bit? They're fleecing you. And their only interest is themselves. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus is talking about a personal, intimate relationship with each sheep. Jesus is not talking about intermediaries. He doesn't need some priest to get you to him. He doesn't need some go-between. He is ready to be intimately connected to each one of us. To what degree, what kind of intimacy are we talking about here? Well, Jesus says, let me say what I mean. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now, how connected do you think Jesus and the Father are? How connected do you think within the Trinity, the Godhead itself, God the Father and God the Son, how intimate do you think they are? That is the, the pattern. Jesus is saying, this is the level of intimacy I am after with my sheep. I want to know them. I want them to know me. Paul meditated profoundly on this. That Christ is in me. And I am in Christ. I laid down my soul for the sheep. One more thing about the good shepherd. He wants us all. I've got sheep that aren't part of this courtyard. Now Jesus in his earthly ministry focused on the Jews because they were the people God had revealed his plan of redemption to and they were the ones he was preparing for over uh, 1,500 years of preparation so that they would be his instrument to bring redemption to the whole world. So he focused on the Jewish people. But the thing he did as soon as he accomplished redemption and rose from the dead, he told them, now you guys, go make disciples of all the earth. Don't stay here in Jerusalem. 
Get out there and find the furthest reaches of the globe and bring them in. I have sheep that aren't in this courtyard, but I'm going to bring them. And they're going to heed my voice just like you did. There's going to be one flock, one shepherd. Some theologians claim that God has one plan for Israel, one plan for the church. I think they are dead wrong. God has only one fold, one shepherd, one plan, one way, one gate. Not, there aren't multiple things going on. One flock. And Jesus is bringing in people from anywhere and everywhere to participate. I have a question from these verses. Jesus willingly laid down his very soul for our rescue. How does that give him a claim to our hearts that no one else has? Verse 17. This is why the Father loves me. Because I lay down my soul so that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down from myself. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. He says, you know why the Father loves me so much? Because the Father loved you. And he wanted to rescue you from sin and death. And he knew the only way that could happen is if I was willing to come here, empty myself of glory, take on flesh, and willingly give up my body and soul for the redemption of the world. And guess what? I said, Dad, let's do this. The Father loves me because I have implemented his redemption plan. I have made it possible for the rescue of the human race to take place. And how does Jesus do it? By laying down his soul for us. Now Jesus says, I've got the authority to lay it down. I've got the authority to take it back up again. Nobody can take this from me. Nobody can force me to do this. The only way it's going to happen is if I willingly do it. You know, at any moment, and Jesus told his disciples this, at any moment he could have called the crucifixion off. At any moment he could have said the word and legions of angels would have been there and would have busted the whole thing wide open. You know what that tells me? That as he was on the cross, bearing the pouring out of the full weight of God against all sin, he had to choose to stay there until it was extinguished to the last drop. He could have said, stop it, I can't bear this at any moment, and he didn't. The only reason Jesus died is he was willing to die. Nobody could take that from him. He gave his life. It was not taken. He says, this is the commandment I received from the Father. The Father told me, do this. And I said, yes. We know at Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixions, he, he pleaded, Father, I know all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will. 
your will. And the father heard him. And the father said, no. The cup will not pass. This is the way. And Jesus obeyed. He said, that's why the father loves me. Because I have made possible your rescue. I have a question from these verses. Jesus endured the horror of the cross out of obedience to the Father. What does this tell us about the Father's intent toward us? Let's finish verses 19 through 21. There was division again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the words of one demonized. A demon is not able to open the eyes of the blind. This has happened multiple times throughout this whole passage. Jesus and the leaders back and forth. And then after they're done talking for a bit, people are divided about it. Some say this, some say the other. And here we have it again. Some reject Jesus flat out. Oh, he's, he's got a demon. If it's not a demon, he's just flipping crazy. He's just lost it. He's insane. What he says makes no sense. Why do you even listen to him? There are plenty of people who respond to Jesus that way. All this talk about dying to yourself, serving others, loving God, seeking God's kingdom first, and then you worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear? Didn't Jesus know about the, the, the pyramid of needs and all that? And you, you can't deal with God until you've taken care of the food and all No, Jesus said completely opposite of all that. Put God first and everything else will work out. People say that's absolutely insane. Why do you even listen to Jesus? And others say, wait a minute. Pay attention to what Jesus is doing. What he's saying. Demons don't talk this way. Demons don't talk about laying down their soul for anything. And the influence of demons on the lives of people is not that suddenly they can see better. Not that suddenly they understand. Not that suddenly there is clarity. Demons are in the business of obscurity. Of confusion, of deception, of darkening your understanding and confusing your grasp on what is true. Does it seem to you that that's what Jesus does to people? Look at people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus who will tell you, the reason my life is what it is today is Jesus. He has absolutely transformed everything about me. Evaluate those lives and tell me, are those the works of a demon? Is that the way darkness works its way out in the life of a human being? Jesus brings life and light to any who will receive it. He's our source of living water ever renewing, flowing from within into eternity. He is the light of the cosmos. If there is light, it is because He is. If He were not, there would be no such thing as light. He is the light of life. 
And if we turn to him, he will give us access, entry into the fold of God. Not only that, but he will be our shepherd. He will march out ahead of us. He will guide us into life and abundance. He will lead us to true pasture and will never ever exploit us or kill us or destroy us. Quite the opposite. You might say, I just don't like Jesus. I'd rather follow somebody else. I want to give you fair warning if that's your choice. And that's obviously a choice you can make. What Jesus is saying here plays out every single time. It never fails. You choose somebody else. You choose some other path. You choose some other way. It may seem for a while that it's working out, but ultimately that guru is only in it for himself and ultimately he's going to take things from you and destroy your life. Jesus alone does just the opposite. You need to ask yourself, Whose care you want to entrust yourself to? I pray you trust your heart to the good shepherd. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to us, for bringing us light and life, for ending the darkness, for uh, offering us entry into your uh, fold, for laying down your soul for us. Lord, we are in awe. We have nothing to offer worthy of what you have done, of who you are. But we're so grateful that you still call us. Lord, help us to entrust our hearts and souls and lives to you. Be the good shepherd of our souls. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.